Hey, Don. Hey, Zach. This week, you sent me an article from the New York Times, which was profiling a fourth grade teacher out in California. Her name was Christine Hostetter. She was a beloved teacher. People used to vie and kind of jockey around and request her that everybody, it seemed like in their community, wanted her to be their child's fourth grade teacher. However, her politics seemed to kind of slant towards the conservative side. This article kind of goes on to explain that she sort of was involved in some rallies that were like anti-mask rallies uh, against COVID. It sounds like she was also out in Washington, D.C., protesting on the day of the Capitol insurrection. And basically, people were maybe a little bit alarmed and concerned as they were seeing posts on her Instagram and on her Facebook page of her various political activities. But then once they saw her on the Capitol of the day of the insurrection, people went to the school board and started to complain and to protest. And here's the best paragraph I read. To Miss Hostetter's backers, the entire affair is being overblown by an intolerant mob of woke liberals who have no respect for the privacy of someone's personal politics. Yet Miss Hostetter's politics, while personal, are hardly private. And Don, this article just kind of goes on to describe this woman's life and this woman's politics and also her activities in the classroom and also the community's reaction to her. And at the same time, it just kind of goes to ask the question, does it matter what politics teachers have and should they be allowed to do anything they want or should teachers be held to a higher standard? What do you think about the article? Well, the important points are here that her husband is a huge activist and very, very strong supporter of Donald Trump and a skeptic of the COVID, vaccine, the COVID virus. And she seemed to be at rallies with him and filming them and being there, but she was never on the record saying anything. But that is almost beside the point. Do teachers really have to be entirely off the record? Do we have to be entirely non-biased, not only in the classroom, but out of the classroom? And that's really the thing I kept thinking a lot about is when can someone have their own private life and when can someone have their own public life? I was thinking, though, the first thing I thought is, I feel like in the old days, when we used to say a right to privacy, it was something that people knew in their own life, they didn't want to share with others. And therefore, they kept it hidden, or they didn't talk about it much, or maybe they only spoke about things that they wanted to keep private to close confidants that they could trust. Nowadays, though, as everybody seems to live their life online and in images and in video, it seems like privacy is now something that everybody knows if that makes sense. And that's also what makes this a little bit more difficult. I got to assume 30 years ago, nobody would know if this lady had attended a protest. Nobody would know that this lady was attending her husband's protests. And at the same time, should it really matter? It doesn't matter if you're a conservative or a liberal. Really, to me, what it seemed like it mattered is, are you a good teacher? And it seems like she is. A lot of people want to be in her classroom. I'm going to disagree with you about 30 years ago, and I know this because I have a father and a mother who were both teachers at the time they met. And my dad was a teacher, my mom was a substitute teacher, and he used to sneak out of her apartment when they were dating before they got married in the morning because if his principal saw him leaving her apartment, he could be fired instantly. And when they were finally married, everybody found out in the school because that was going to be a fireable offense. So it's always been a case that your business as a teacher can put you in peril at your job. No, and that's a good point. I remember a couple summers ago, my family, we went out to Walnut Grove, Minnesota, where Laura Ingalls Wilder spent a little bit of time uh, and Little House in the Prairie I'm referring to. 
And there's this museum and they have a one room schoolhouse that you can kind of walk through on the wall of the, of the schoolhouse was the rules and expectations for a teacher back in the 1860s, 1870s or so. And it was all about, you had to be single. You could not be seen with other men. You could not be seen out in town by yourself. And there were all of these things that were very judgmental about a person's personal actions that they might take outside of school. And yet that just seemed to be a part of the job. And the expectation was, if you got married, you had to leave the job. So I guess you're right. I guess there's a historical precedence for this. But to me, it just seems like here's a teacher who's doing their job during their school day and is doing what they want to do in the in their private life. Is it a bad thing or should be people be allowed to think it's a bad thing? Well, they can think it's a bad thing. And ultimately, this was led to an investigation and she was found innocent in the investigation. I think to her credit, she was wise not to personally post anything. So they didn't have anything on the record about her per se, other than her attendance at different rallies. It seems like she's a great teacher and that parents want their kids to be in her class. And she just really is playing with fire a little bit that she's at these things. But it's a little bit the system of this generation. I would imagine most jobs, you could get in trouble if you had some prestige or name recognition if you're involved in various political causes. And because we are so divided, either side really is fair game for somebody to be upset and call for your investigation or ultimate removal. I don't know if anybody really has a tremendous amount of latitude for where they protest politically or where they forecast their, uh, show their desires and their whims. Right. And I guess people's political views were always sort of seen in the right to privacy mode. And as we said, it's really hard if you're putting a lot of your privacy sort of online for people to view. But a part of me still feels like, did this lady break the law? Now, what some people want to know is, was she a part of the insurrection? Did she make her way onto the Capitol? But to me, that just seems like a legal issue that the authorities will have to figure out if she broke the law. And then I guess from that standpoint, I guess they'll have to figure out, did that somehow trigger something in her contract as a teacher? I was trying to think like, if you or I were ever caught drunk driving, for instance, I don't think we could be fired for that. It doesn't look good. That's for sure for you or I to do that. And obviously it would be a publicly written down thing in the public log and people could look it up and find it. It of course would be probably pretty embarrassing, but I don't think we could lose our job from it. And at the same time, I would hope that if something like that were to happen to you or I, people would still be able to step back and say, this is terrible. And I have lost a lot of respect for these guys for putting people in society in harm's way. But at the same time, I know that these people are good educators or are people that are really trying to care about my kid and do their job in the classroom. I mean, wouldn't that be how you'd want to be judged? I would imagine so. I'm pretty sure I know teachers that have had drunken driving convictions, although they may not be recent, and they're still employed. But when I was in California, part of my teaching contract was I could not be a member of the Communist Party. I could be fired instantly if I was a member of the Communist Party. So I don't know. There are factors here that can play a huge role. Really? Was there, I mean, was that just something that had been in there forever? Obviously, you were in Southern California, and I know there were some major um, movements against communists as they were trying to blacklist people and find people back in the 1940s. Was that just a holdover from then? Or did you get a sense that people were still looking for that kind of stuff? I don't know of how long it'd been in the contract. I've read the entire contract, which tells you the kind of time I had on hands when I was 22. And I saw that line. I was like, Ooh, I guess I can't be a member of the communist party. 
And a guy that I know that was wiser than me said, oh, yeah, no, no, you, you cannot be a member of the Communist Party. There was a small group of extremely conservative people in where we lived in California. And perhaps they fought for that through their school board, through whatnot. Or maybe it is a legacy from the 40s. I don't know. Well, you bring up a good point about the school board. And you mentioned this, I believe, last week. But the school board is supposed to be a reflection of the community and ultimately the community's values and stuff like that. And in this article, it seemed like the school board was sort of split. Some people seem sort of upset at the information that was coming out about this teacher. Other people seemed kind of supportive about it. And therefore, there was sort of an investigation, but it didn't seem like there was a total unanimous movement either for or against this lady. But I guess it did make me wonder, do you think school boards should be able to hire people that they feel like maybe politically represent the community's views? Well, I think school boards have the right to advocate for the hiring of people that are will fit with the community. So where I taught in California, there was a lot of Midwestern college students that would come down and teach in the desert for a couple of years and then ultimately leave. That led to a lot of turnover and the constant recruiting drive. And then recent research has indicated if you get students from your district, even if your district's a rough place, to become teachers that they're likely to stay because they're grounded in the community and their families are there. And that's the new movement. And that's who they're trying to hire rather than outsiders like me, who's not at all familiar with the culture of the community, but came in. And I really love my experience there, but they're trying to get people locally. Now, that just makes sense. And that's a good reason to do it. But at the same time, communities can search for people that fit. They may want somebody that fits with their particular demographic or understands their community. And there's nothing wrong with that. Although maybe if you're just hiring a certain perspective, it's not very balanced, but that might be what the school board wants. Ultimately, they're in charge of the district. And usually most communities are diverse enough that you're going to get a diverse set of opinions on any sort of a board. And hopefully they're making fairly reasonable choices and stuff like that about their hiring practices. And for the most part, again, people have a right to privacy and you can't necessarily hold these sort of things against them. Again, I think what makes it hard is when these sort of things become public or when you have pictures in your background. Now, I've talked to people that work in human resources in different school districts, or I've talked to educational administration that hire people. And usually it seems like nowadays, one of the more common practices is when you're hiring somebody, you do a quick Instagram or Facebook search just to kind of get a sense of their pictures and who they are and stuff like that. You'll talk to job recruiters who tell people to clean up those things that a lot of younger people don't realize the sort of digital crumbs and footprints that they leave out there. And sometimes these pictures are never the most flattering. And it's not necessarily that they're attending political rallies. It just might be, you know, things that they're doing in their personal life, or maybe they were in college and they made a couple of poor choices. All of that stuff seems out there. Nowadays, it does kind of reflect on, I guess, who you are in your professional world, even though it shouldn't. Absolutely. And you'd see this oftentimes there's an athlete that comes to prominence and they do something great. And then people start scrolling through their history on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, and they find something offensive or homophobic or in some way inappropriate. And then they have to go back and apologize to this thing. I mean, I'm encouraging my kids to stay off of social media because you're on the record forever. Even if you delete it, there's an archive of the internet that people can go back and find that stuff. And that's part of the reason I'm off the record other than this podcast. (laughs) <laughs> well, it makes me think of Michael Phelps, right? Didn't he come home from Beijing, won all those medals, and then we saw pictures of him online with marijuana and stuff like that. And then he had to go on a whole apology tour. And 
that kind of leads me to remembering about Michael Vick and all of the dog fighting. He was, of course, the quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons. But the Falcons, I believe, were able to null and void his contract from sort of a morality clause, I believe. It seemed like there was some sort of a clause in contracts where if an athlete's behavior is so appalling, they can just sort of say, we are allowed to cut you and not pay you anymore. I don't think we have anything like that, do we? I don't know, but the true irony in the NFL there is that you can abuse your spouse, you can abuse your kids, but you can't abuse dogs. And the other people that we've talked that I'm referring to kept their jobs and found further employment, even though they'd abuse their spouses or their kids. Dogs can't hurt, can't hurt dogs. And again, what was just interesting about this article was kind of how people from both the left and the right wanted to take up the cause of either filling out petitions to try to have her removed or other people wanted her to stay there. And as you said, I think the teacher handled it in the right way of just sort of saying nothing and and giving no comment. I guess my question to you is, if your children were in her classroom, how do you think you would handle it? Or would you handle it any differently? I almost want to know as little as possible about my son's teachers outside the classroom. I'm happy that they do a good job. And if I think they do a good job, I'm overjoyed. Certainly there's been some teachers that have looked great and some that looked poor in hindsight. However, they're all out of class behavior is entirely inconsequential to me. And so, yeah, if she's really good, that's cool. I'm happy to have her there. I think she does a good job. It's I think kindergarten, right? Like it's early education. Oh, fourth grade. It's early elementary. It's not something that where they're really acutely aware politically, she'd have to really work to get across a message if she wanted to. And the article came up with some former students, both of them were minorities, and both of them came up with totally different perspectives about their experience with her. And at the same time, I think I would probably join you in that I don't necessarily know if I want to know a ton about my kids teachers either in their private life. And at the same time, I guess I would be judging it based upon what are the things that my kid is coming home and saying about their classroom experience. And what I mean by that is, do they feel appreciated? Do they feel challenged? Do they feel pushed? Are they given good, solid feedback? And if that kind of stuff is happening, I'm not sure I would be following this kind of thing this much. In fact, you and I, of course, being old guys that are not on the internet, I'd be curious if we'd even know if this issue were happening. We'd have to hear about it from other parents. That's where I get things. I get things from the connected mom group that uh, we're friends with that tells us what's actually happening because we're busy doing our lives and not on social media. So we have to hear about it from them. And I guess that would come down to then, you're right, different groups of people are talking. Definitely parents are, are comparing notes about their kids' experience in a classroom. And I guess it would come down to maybe your group's sort of view on this thing. And maybe that even comes down to their own political view, which I guess could be good or bad. Absolutely. A long time ago, Charles Barkley filmed a commercial. He was famous for saying, I am not a role model. And he just kind of went on to say like, your parents or your teacher, they should be role models, but not me, the professional athlete. And I think you and I have both sort of rejected that a little bit in that, hey, you don't get to pick if you're a role model or not. If people look at you in society, then you're kind of a role model, whether you want it to be or not. A part of me just sort of wondered, what do you think about this? Are we role models as teachers? I kind of think we are. And therefore, do you think our behavior should be held to a higher standard of conduct than maybe others? Yeah, I think we should be held to a higher matter of conduct. And we do a good job for the most part. I feel like I constantly 
am correcting kids that say things like referring to a doctor and saying he, and I say, you know, women can be doctors too, right? And just making little subtle corrections like that, that students start to realize. And I have heard many times from former students that they really appreciate that correction and that recalibration of how students position gender roles and race roles and things like that. And not saying all of any group are any way. And so, yeah, we have to do that. I think that's part of our job. I don't think it's one that's easily assessed from the administrative part, but I think it is something that is part of our job that's just implied, or at least I think it is. Maybe I'm not representative of the whole community. No, I've always often thought about how in some ways you're kind of under a microscope, whether you want to be or not, right? You see students out in public and obviously they're instantly looking at you and what are you doing? Now, you're not doing anything wrong, but you definitely sometimes realize that, hey, they see you. That may or may not impact what happens in the classroom. In fact, if anything, I'd like to believe that, hey, what happens in one's private life should not impact what happens in their professional life. And therefore, if you're getting the job done as a teacher in the classroom, why should any of this stuff matter? However, I'm a believer that perception can be reality. And therefore, if this incident changes how families see you, maybe how your students see you, is it possible then that it's kind of a legitimate argument people are making about the petitions and wanting this teacher removed is we can't see this person in the same old light and therefore it has impacted their job performance? Yeah, but why do the parents' perceptions ultimately matter? It's the job they do in, in uh, focusing on the kids. Although I guess that's what administration hears about is the parents. Ultimately, it comes down to, are you in a union? Can the union protect you? Do you have strict rules for how that you're assessed? I'm sure this teacher, whether they're in the union or not, California is not a right to work state, so she must be in the union. So then she has to represent the situation and the union and the rules are there to protect her. And it seems like they did, despite the fact that I really don't share any of her beliefs, but I'm happy that she was treated in the way she was. And I guess my thing is, and this is the part that I, I found fascinating, is the sort of slippery slope model, which I'm not sure how much I always like to hear the word slippery slope, but it seems like if we're going to make a big deal out of this, then what's the next thing we make a big deal of, right? Now, again, if there was a crime committed, then the authorities will take care of it. And there will be a process that happens at all levels and stuff like that. But it just seems like the public outrage part is the part that's sort of concerning to me and that it would be really hard to have to go and do your job knowing that there's this whole world of, of parents in the community that are kind of really against you for what sort of a political rally you attended. Well, and it's not just one group of parents against you. There's a parents that's just like the rest of America. There's people on both sides, especially with COVID issue. You can make one group of happy, then the other 50% hates you and vice versa. There's no way to make everybody happy. And overall, I think it makes the job of a teacher is less alluring and that people are, there's more involved here. There's more people are getting involved in your job and how you're doing it. And they have opinions about your beliefs. And it just in general makes the job more challenging and less desirable for people coming out of school. We as social studies teachers, one of the first things that we're sort of taught and instructed to do is to be as impartial as possible, to always try and bring up the views of all political spectrums, to try to do our best to not necessarily share our political views with students. 
and to try to let students sort of form their own opinions. Now, I'm sure that there are ways in which we can never totally hide our bias and stuff like that. And therefore, once again, that sort of seems like it's the kind of weird world that we're living in, a world of images, a world where it's much easier to track what people are doing with their free time. Well, I think that's where we really struggle right now is that the appropriate and acceptable thing is to recognize all people who are of different genders, of different sexual orientation, to say that vaccines work and that vaccines are appropriate uses uh, to prevent the growth of this pandemic and keep people alive. And these are fundamental accepted truths that I think everybody in our district, or at least all the, the vast majority of administration in our district would agree about. But yet this is the thing that people are rejecting against and going against. So now it's not just that they are a different political perspective, they're going against scientifically and professionally agreed upon truths. Well, and there's always been a fear, and I think it's from both political perspectives, that these poor tabula rasa students coming to school and they're being manipulated by teachers that are perceived to come from, from either the right or the left with a political lens, right? And the idea that these schools are, are raising children to see the world in a, in a different way. I could see where an article like this could be very emotionally charged, where you feel like, oh my gosh, well, here's a teacher that, that, that went to a major news event of the political protests that happened up in Washington, D.C. And then there was, of course, the insurrection at the Capitol, but she doesn't seem to have been a part of that, or at least there's no proof that she was there. And at the same time, I could see where this sort of fills that that void for some people or helps people jump to conclusions about what they've always thought teachers were doing. Well, that's what's interesting about this article is that it's the opposite side of the perspective. In general, teachers are viewed as left and liberal, and that goes with highly educated people in general, and that the conservative community doesn't want the teachers brainwashing the kids. But this situation, the, the teacher is on the far, far other side of the perspective. And so that's what makes it interesting. And it's hard to be on her side in terms of her beliefs, but for me at least, but it's easy to be on her side with how the process played out. Do you think it's sort of interesting that it's the New York Times that reported this story? The New York Times has always sort of been critiqued as leaning a little bit left politically. And therefore, here they are sort of raising this story. Do you think that has anything to do with it? Or do you just say, no, this is just good quality journalism writing about a very relevant current event? It is interesting the Times took this on. I think they do want to be a little bit less biased towards the left that they are. In general, I find it quite melodramatic and the whole Times it's bothering me a little bit that way. But I thought this was a real good article that concerned a situation without making a judgment on the beliefs. We've seen some of these capital rioters return home and some of them have really struggled professionally. We've seen some realtors that have lost all of their business. And we've seen some people who have had their businesses boycotted because of the proof that they attended the riots inside the Capitol and, and people just in the free market have chosen not to necessarily give them their business. And it made me just sort of wonder, let's just say there were teachers at this riot who had uh, gone into the Capitol. Do you think that they should be treated any differently? Should parents have the right to, to boycott these teachers' classrooms? Well, that's the free market and public education is not the free market. They're unionized workers that are protected. Well, mostly unionized workers that are protected and parents don't have the choice, really. I mean, in 
in reality, parents have a lot of ability and latitude through administration to get their kid in and out of a teacher's classroom. But ultimately, in the re they don't really have a choice. And their choice is private school or public school. If they don't like it, they can go to private school if they can afford it. And if not, they can make do. I mean, it is what it is. It's a different job and comes with it some benefits. But isn't that maybe where the frustration then comes in is, as you said, people don't get the choice necessarily to always pick their student's teacher. And therefore, I wonder if maybe that's the problem. There isn't sort of a, an invisible hand solution, if you will. Oh, yeah, I, I get that. Public school, you can't really choose your kid's teacher. And there's been times we've been frustrated. And we've never really spoken out as a rejection, but there's some teachers that, that are not very good. And our students have had them, our kids have had them, and it's just frustrating. But it is what it is. We weren't upset about the political leaves, but it was just their uh, poor performance. But you're kind of stuck with it. Or you could fight the uphill battle there or take your kid to private school. And we know people that have taken their kids to private school as a result. But it is, it, you're just kind of stuck with that. And that's the frustration. I think that's also the frustration with coaches. You're going to play a sport at a public school. You're going to get the coach that's there, whether you like them or not. And it is just, they feel trapped. And that their kid's one chance is based upon this person. And they will make them or break them. And that's what parents get really upset about. I think you made a really good point a moment ago when you said an event like this maybe just makes the profession of teaching just maybe even less appealing for people to go into in the future. They realize that you kind of go under a microscope, whether you want to be or not. And in a lot of ways, there will be a lot of judgments passed on you. Maybe that bothers you, maybe it doesn't. But it kind of leads into another major story that's now starting to get reported more and more as the pandemic now kind of hits the one-year mark. And that is sort of the national shortage of teachers that is, is sort of hitting all states and in a lot of communities in a lot of different ways. I wanted just to read you a, a little section from Axios. And here's the best paragraph I read. It said, the pandemic has pushed teachers out of the workforce in droves, and many schools don't have a safety net to fill the gaps as children come back into classrooms. Why it matters. Teaching has been one of the toughest pandemic-era jobs with pivots to remote learning and then risk of infection with schools reopening. Teacher retirements are up 44% in Michigan since August. There's also no safety net with substitute teachers. There are many shortages there. 73% of districts said their need for substitute teachers was more dire in 2020 than in 2019. And Don, you and I have seen fellow colleagues that have retired in the middle of the school year. We are living the substitute shortage as often we're asked to go fill in for classrooms that don't have a sub that day. What did you think about the national teacher shortage? Overall, we have less people interested in going in the into the profession and it is due to many factors. I know the school of education is less popular the compared to engineering and this entire STEM movement that we keep hearing pushed. Business has its own uh, allure because of the money there. And that the state schools that make lots of teachers like Eastern, Western, and Central are falling in enrollment just in Michigan. And I imagine that's true in other places as well. People that are going to college are steering away from teaching profession. Now, the reason for that is only things we can guess at, but you could guess that the pay is not increased with infl inflation, so the wages are low. The job is harder because more is asked of us in, gen in terms of different trainings and different things we have to do. The jobs of an elementary teacher have become tremendously more demanding in the last 20 years because it used to be elementary school teachers could 
teach whatever they wanted. As long as they're doing a little reading, a little writing, it's okay. Throw some spelling in there. But now they're held accountable. They have to measure the kids' reading levels every two weeks. And their job performance and their assessment of their job performance depended on the kids' ability to read. And it's all driven on getting the bottom kids up to the reading level. And once the kids are good enough, they're basically on their own. It's a hard gig to be an elementary school teacher. To a high school teacher, I don't think it's changed nearly as much. And you would know the middle level better than I, so I don't want to speak about that. But certainly the job's getting harder and the pay's not growing and commiserate with that. I would say the expectations have definitely increased about what a teacher is expected to do during their day. And definitely certain parts of the autonomy are gone in terms of how you're spending your time. And I think that's fair but I just don't know if that necessarily explains why people aren't going into the profession or why we don't have teachers. Now, I could see where what you just said explains why people are maybe leaving the profession sooner than um, than maybe they would. I can totally understand why this year with the pandemic, we have experienced both virtual teaching, online teaching, hybrid teaching, back face-to-face teaching. We know people that have left because they're tired of the schedule change. We also know people that left just because of the, the health considerations, either they or their spouse you know, maybe had a scare or they didn't want to get anywhere near COVID and therefore they left because of that. There's a lot of reasons why people have left. But as you mentioned too, there's a shortage in terms of kids going into this profession. And that's something that I sort of would like to know more about and push more into because I could see where people are looking out and saying, where are we going to hire the next set of teachers? Absolutely. I, I don't know where they come from. Perhaps the, they need to increase the pay. Perhaps they need to do a better campaign to get people into it. I mean, over and over, for years and years, we hear engineering and STEM, engineering and STEM, and that's what kids are told to do, so they do it. Now, whether that's actually the path to riches and happiness is not crystal clear to me, but certainly there's not a big movement of teachers. We need teachers. Teachers are great. Teachers are a redeeming profession. Teaching is an enjoyable profession. And so it's not getting the PR that a lot of other fields are. No, you make a great point. One of the things, and we kind of talked about this with our wives a couple of weeks ago, is I don't know if I've ever heard many teachers, maybe I've heard a few, but very few of them talk to younger kids about the job of being a teacher. Very few of them recommend that any of them go into the profession. And I'm not sure if that's just because teachers are in it so long that they just have kind of forgotten some of the benefits of the job, but it does seem like a lot of teachers speak very negatively about the experience. And that does sort of negatively impact other people that are thinking about it. I've heard kids say, Oh, I was thinking about being a teacher, but then I talked to Mr. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so, or my mom's a teacher. And and all of them said, don't be a teacher. So I guess I kind of, you know, crossed that one off the list. And a part of me is like, Oh, well, have you ever tried to go into a classroom and, and maybe try to present a lesson or try to interact with kids that are younger with you and see it differently. And a lot of them say, no, I never tried that. And therefore I kind of like, well, I don't know, maybe you shouldn't judge it that way. Maybe you should judge it by the experience. But I've also noticed that one of the things I, I can't decide if it's a good idea or not is a lot of teacher preparation programs require kids to go into classrooms to observe And that's it. They just sit there as if they're another student watching a teacher teach. We rarely seem to ask people at a very early stage in the process of becoming a teacher to get up there and teach, to get a sense of how it actually feels 
to do the job, to, to understand what it's like to have a bunch of eyeballs staring at you and how to put things together in a coherent sequence and how to manage a classroom. And I feel like sometimes then people that are in a teaching program, it's only at the very end that they're trying to teach. And then they realize, I don't really like this, or I'm not very good at this. I don't want to do this. And it's like, well, man, we just wasted somebody's time. Well, you have two big points there. And I want to take on both of those. The first one is that Teachers talk bad about teaching often, but I think it's because it's the thing they know. That's oftentimes the only thing they've known. And because they've been in school and become a teacher, they know school really, really well. They know what teaching was. It was easier and higher paid. They know what it is. It is harder and less well-paid, but it's, that's all they know. What are they going to compare it to? Whereas people in the business world know a little bit what teaching's like in that they went to school and they have at least, they think, an idea of what teaching is like, but they also know their current profession and the other professions that are tangentially involved with their profession. They have an idea of what a lot of things are like. We don't really know what the world is like. And this is something that always intrigues me when I talk to other people is what is your job and what do you actually do? I'm interested. My dad is a college professor. My mom's a librarian. Before that, they're both teachers. I don't really know what people do in the business world. I'm very intrigued and want to find out because I don't know what that's like. And so I, how can I really understand that and compare it to teaching? Now, that said, I had a discussion with our a colleague this week, and I said, I think teaching's good. I like it. I wouldn't tell my kid that wants to be engaged and involved with other children and doing something kind of interesting every day to go into engineering if they don't think they're going to like it. If you're the kind of person that thrives around other people and interacting with other people, why would you sit and stare at a computer for eight, 10, 12 hours a day? It's not a great alternative. And so we just don't understand the thing. And that's why I think teachers tell teacher, other kids that teaching is bad or they badmouth teaching because they just don't know the alternative. They only know the history of teaching. I, I think that's a really good point. I, I think one of the things I've thought about a lot is all of the incentives in our job is to stay the course, right? Stay the full 30 years because there's a pension at the end. And, and, you know, and that's a very nice thing, especially in an era where not a lot of people get a pension at the end of their jobs. But what I also feel like when I talk to a lot of teachers is they really like the job, maybe the first 10 or 15 years, but they just kind of realize that every year is sort of the same and the, the cycle of it all just sort of, eh, I'd rather do something else, right? But then there's sort of a feeling of, but all of the incentive is to stay towards the very end. And therefore, I do wonder sometimes if some teachers get a little burned out or just a little tired of the same routine year after year after year. And therefore, does that start to impact kind of negatively how they talk about the job, how they think about the job, and how they express it to other people when maybe they forgot the first 10 years, maybe 15 years, they liked the job and they found it exhilarating to, to work with young people. And I also think you make a tremendous point when you talk about the job skills that it takes. I think often people say, well, I got to know economics to be Mr. McLaughlin, or I really need to know all of world history to, to be Mr. Abiel or something like that. And yet really the skill set that I think a good teacher is, is somebody who can relate to other humans, right? Somebody who understands that it is a skill to have a lot of patience, to communicate with young people, to give them honest feedback when they do good and when they do bad, to just sort of accept the fact that 
you're dealing with teenagers and you're dealing with young kids who are not going to be perfectly behaved individuals all the time. But that's part of what being a professional teacher is, is shaping these kids, working with these kids and having the patience. And as you and I know, the curriculum piece, a lot of people could do that part. But the part of day after day getting up and, and relating and working with kids, that does take a skill. Well, and to explain what you're what you're saying about the incentives is the longer teachers stay, for the most part, the more money they make. And that paired with higher education levels gets you the salary that you can support a family on. And so the incentive is to stay. And for the record, it, income and happiness is only correlated up to about 70000 a year per household. So a veteran teacher is going to make enough money, especially if their spouse has another job to be happy. It's just that we always want more because that's how humans feel. Secondly, yeah, the thing with our jobs that I don't like is that it's all about encouraging people to stay exactly where they are doing exactly what they're doing. And that administration, department chairs, everybody wants to stay in their spot because once they have their set of curriculum ready, it's just easy to lock and load and go again. And that in that way, people end up teaching history for... 25, 30 years in the same room with the same grade level doing the same material. And that's the bad part because it doesn't get you challenged and to try something new. And the first 10 years is really interesting as you try to come up with new things and how are you going to do this and perfecting and getting it well. And then eventually you end up to the point where I feel like I am. Now, maybe I'm wrong that I have good lessons in econ and I know how to do them. The kids will learn and perform well. They're funny. The kids will laugh and I hate it because every day I'm doing something that I've done 80 times before. And even though it works, it's frustrating, but it's hard to break out of that rut because you know it works. Why should I try something new that will take more time, more energy? It might not even work, but ultimately that's what I have to do. And that's the battle I fight with myself to really renew it because at the same point, it's getting a little bit stale. Two solution ideas I want to run by you, because I've thought about this as well about, you're right, things can become stale or things can become sort of Groundhog's Day. One, I remember like five or six years ago, I read that like Amazon gave any employee who wanted to leave like $5,000, I think, or something like that. And it was basically like a quitting bonus. But the idea was like, look, like if you don't want to be here, then we respect the right that you don't want to be here anymore. And that transitioning to another career will take some time and some resources. Therefore, we want to help you with that because we only want people here at Amazon that are committed. And I sort of wondered, like, do you think that would work for schools? Like, hey, we only want people that still super want to be here and super want to keep, um, you know, making this school the best it can possibly be. But we also realize that it takes time and resources to transition. Therefore, here's a leaving bonus. And do you think that would, would possibly maybe change things up at all? I think it would, but my discussions earlier this week with a colleague leading up to this podcast was saying that I don't think you can find good replacements. And I know that when my wife's been in our interviews, most of the candidates have been pretty bad. There's less people coming out of school, which means less good people. And it's hard to find good replacements. And so I'm not sure they really want to let us go. They can hire a new teacher for less than half the price they're paying me. But I'm not sure they think they can find somebody that's good. Or do they even care? I'm not sure. I do think, though, that you and I would represent stability 
Here are two people that are going to show up regularly. They know what they get with us. And I'm not saying that they know that they're getting greatness or anything. I think that they just know that here are two people who are going to do the job in the way that they want us to do it. And also, it's probably not a good thing when you have a ton of turnover all the time, right? You want some institutional knowledge of people that just know how the general building procedures work. Not everything is just written down in a, in a manual about scheduling or, or what's kind of expected. And it's partly just people that have been there for a long time that understand the building culture. So that seems really important to want to have at least a decent amount of experienced staff. Well, that goes to what I was saying earlier about teaching in communities where they struggle to find teachers and developing people within the community. Because if you have 20% turnover a year, like you did at the high school I was at in California, it's really hard to maintain a culture and to have good, effective teachers there all the time, especially because it's a proving ground for so many people like me. But yeah, there is some value to that. I'm not sure that's something that the district thinks tremendously about. I also think there's cultural differences in that the people that are there like us in our 40s have a different culture, work ethic, and appreciation of values than other people that are younger, who may bring good things and bad things. And there's some value to that. We have teachers in our building that have been there since the early 70s, and people that just got there this year. That's a wide range, and I think there's merit to having that wide range. Definitely. I think I think having that kind of change is a good thing. Well, my, my other idea then, besides maybe giving teachers that want to leave some sort of an exit bonus, if you will, is what about every five to seven years, three to five to seven years, forcing teachers to go change up the grade level they teach or the subjects they teach? As somebody that about five years into my career, I got displaced. I used to teach with you at a high school and now I teach at a middle school. I did not want to go. I, I did not want to leave high school teaching. And yet my job opportunity was to be at a middle school or else no job. And so obviously I took my job. And yet I always look back now and saying that was the greatest thing that ever happened to me in terms of forcing me to see the world differently, forcing me to do a new curriculum, work with younger kids. And I just always think like, I think I became maybe a better educator by being forced to make that move, even though I never would have chosen it. Do you think that would be something that could reinvigorate educators and also possibly make them more dynamic? Yes, I think in the long run, it does. In the short run, the first year of a person that's not great at this thing or doing something new is not going to be as good as leaving them where they were. But in the long run, they'll become more diverse, more skilled and better off. Kind of like this pandemic, this crazy year of teaching online, teaching hybrid, teaching in person has made me better at what I do. I do. It's given me more tools and more resources because I was forced to deal with the situation. In fact, it kind of renewed me a little bit. I don't, I think it's, a, I don't want to say the pandemic's good because certainly it's hurt so many people in so many ways, but it's created a new environment for me and new challenges, which is giving me new skills. And as a professional in my work career, that sense, it's really helped me. I would wholeheartedly agree with that. There's so many different things that I've discovered or techniques that I'm now using with kids that I never would have done if we hadn't had online. I will be curious maybe, you know, two to three years down the road, what sort of pandemic style teaching approaches and ideas have kind of crept into day-to-day -day teaching in the classroom, assuming we're all back face-to-face -face by then. But I, I, do, I do agree, we were forced to get out of the box. And I do think now that we're kind of looking at the other side of it, it's amazing kind of what we've picked up. And, and that's a good thing. Absolutely. It's interesting as a father who's busy with two jobs, I don't want to change when I'm teaching but I really need to. 
I just don't want to do it right now because I don't have a tremendous amount of time that I want to dedicate or have to dedicate to creating new curriculum, but I definitely need to do it. And definitely it'll have to happen in four or five years if I'm going to stay in this profession. Now in four or five years though, I think you are eligible to leave the profession theoretically. Am I correct? Three years, three years. And you know, obviously you'll make your decision probably based upon a ton of different factors as to whether or not you're going to leave. But I think that's interesting. And that could be a major loss to the education profession if we lose Mr. McLaughlin, especially somebody who still has more to give, right? Who can still work with kids. Yet, I guess the question will be, do you think you'll make the decision based upon the hard reality of just finances and economics? Or do you think you'll make the decision at all based upon are you still having quote unquote fun at your job? Like I said, a lot of factors. The number one would be my family, my well-being as my supporting my children going to college, my wife's situation in her work, whether she wants to stay or go, whether we want to move to a different state, and of course, whether or not I'm enjoying what I'm doing still. And I, again, I have little limited understanding of the other world out there. I would like to do something else. I'd like to learn something new, but I don't know what that thing is. And I don't know what I'm really qualified to do. And that's the hard part. The unknown is not scary necessarily because it's different. It's scary because it's uncertain and perhaps harder or untenable. And that would be a really challenging situation, but one I'm interested in. Well, that's what's so interesting about your situation is you're part of a wave in our district where there's a lot of people about your age. I'm kind of a, a couple of years behind you in terms of being able to retire, but there's a lot of people in our district that are sort of within a couple of years of being able to choose whether or not they want to leave or not. And as we were just sort of talking about, there's less and less people that are certified, ready to become teachers here, ready to fill in these sort of ranks. I remember when I was in high school, I had a principal. It's like, oh, you need to go become a teacher. There's going to be all of these retirements. There's just going to be jobs over jobs over jobs. And then I got to the job market in 2005. And there was like one social studies job in the state of Michigan that summer. I found a website that had a, a, a link to every human resource page. And I remember like just clicking on starting at A and working my way down to Z. And I found one job that I could even apply for. And at that time, you had tons of subs. You had to be a certified teacher to be a sub when I first started working in our district. Now, with the recession back in 08, 09, a lot of people that were looking for teaching jobs, I think, left. Either they left the state or they just left the profession. And now it seems like we're desperate for subs. At this point, I maybe you have to have a, some college credits to, to be a sub, but they've really lessened that. Um, certification process because we can't get enough. And it seems like there's not enough certified people coming up the ranks to fill in the gaps of retirement. So my question kind of is like, how do you see this ending? Or how do you see this getting solved? I mean, do you think there's going to be a market correction? Or do you think they'll just lessen certification process that anybody can be a teacher? Well, I had a similar experience to you in 1999, as I graduated college, and I was looking for teaching jobs. In Ann Arbor, where I went to college and grew up, you had to sub for years and hope for an opening. And ultimately, there's few available. And the lines for other districts in Michigan, especially those in high income areas like Bloomfield Hills, were hours long just to hand in your resume. Ultimately, I moved to California because they needed teachers there. And it sounded different and interesting and fun. And that's where I went. And it worked out fantastic and gave me the skills to get the job when I came back in 2004. 
But yeah, I don't think there's that many people out there. Now you have two options. And I, <laughs> I believe it's Arizona who said, we're not raising wages for teachers. We're just going to lower requirements. So it's easier to become a teacher. So you don't need to student teach. And actually the studies say that student teaching doesn't help you tremendously or having a teaching credential in terms of your ability to be a teacher, but they're just lowering requirements, which means there's more supply of teachers and easier to find them. And we'll see how that works for Arizona. Other states are keeping the stringent requirements, but they just can't get anybody. They need to increase wages. And that means higher taxes. That means more funding from the state or local. In Michigan, it has to be the state because there's a law against the local funding. And it's just wild. They, it's going to be hard to find people. I don't think politicians care as much as they say about education. I don't think they're going to increase wages unless there's a tremendous shortage. Because in the short run, they can always let certifications slide and fill the ranks. And that's ultimately what they want to do. Well, there's always been a dream by by certain critics of public education is that the problem with public education is that there are teachers that teach and that these are not real people. As you were saying earlier, why don't we have real engineers in there teaching math and real scientists teaching science and real writers teaching ELA? And maybe that will be the dream. That's what will finally happen if we can get rid of the certification of, of what it means to be a teacher Ultimately, I think you said it best of maybe it's not student teaching that says much about a teacher, but really it's just, are you a people person and can you relate to young people? But I've always kind of thought, I don't think a lot of these professionals want to go and be in a classroom all day because it's not like they're just going to go up to the whiteboard and start working out problems. And these kids are going to be eagerly working along with them. Some of them will, but what are they going to do when they get three kids that want to go to the bathroom in the middle of their lecture? Or what are they going to do when they're getting eye rolls or kids that are refusing to do things? And are they going to be ready to sort of handle all of these other parts that go into a classroom? And therefore, I just don't see it. I just don't see professionals wanting to go down and do it. Also, at the same time, they're probably going to be taking a pay cut to go do that job. And so, as you said, I guess we just go to non-certified people and we hope for the best because I agree with you. I, I don't see wages increasing significantly at any point to just sort of bring in a wave of people. I do wonder though, maybe we need to lean in on marketing again and how we talk about teaching. I do think there's a certain level of disrespect that educators sort of get. Again, going back to the story we had at the beginning, here's somebody who seems like they're doing a good job in the classroom and now has created a social media world of anger, almost like a tornado tornado around them. Now you could say, well, they brought upon it themselves. They had pictures of themselves at a political rally. But at the end of the day, if this person did nothing wrong, it seems like they're just kind of showing that being a teacher is a really hard job and it can really impact your personal life. Well, have you ever had a guest speaker come in? Uh, I had a stockbroker to come into my class to talk about money and investment, which is another class I teach. And uh, they're really wise. They know all the things but they're not necessarily good at dazzling the group, being enthusiastic, being interesting, engaging kids that are not traditionally engaged. That's ultimately the skill that you and I have. It's not about the subject matter knowledge. It's about being able to engage kids and be excited and get them excited and invested in something, whatever that thing is, however boring that thing is. Hey, it's the Sumerians, the wheel. Let's get fired up about the wheel as you talk about. That's the big skill we have. And professionals don't necessarily have that. 
their skill group of like designing brake lights may not be the same skill group that is engaging kids that don't want to learn anything about engineering. And so it's different, different skills for different positions. I don't know if professionals really want to come in. And actually, I'm on the record on this podcast for saying that I like the way the military academies do it in that West Point and the Naval Academy, and the Air Force Academy. Those professors are instructors. They're there to teach. They're not there to do research because the researchers aren't necessarily good at teaching. I'm not sure these skills cross over all that often. I do think schools could push to have more real world possible partnerships or mentorships where kids are getting on the job experience and stuff like that, you know, partly in the classroom and partly working with the company. I just don't think that much shifts if you just bring in professionals to just teach the curriculum that we're doing for all those same reasons just mentioned. But another part of me wants to shame big education and the university system for how they prepare teachers. I, I, when I went to college, and again, I went to a small liberal arts college, I think I had to take three extra classes to get my teacher certification. I did my student teaching in about 10 weeks. And through all of that experience, I pretty much found out if I could do the job or not, and if I liked the job or not. But I look at these poor kids that have to go to like Michigan State or Western or Eastern, and it's a five-year program done, and all the classes they have to take for all those years are education-focused. Then after all their friends are graduating, they have to stay around for a fifth year, pay another year of tuition to these colleges, while they then go and student teach for sometimes up to a year. That to me is incredible. They're basically doing free labor, a complete job that they don't get paid for. They have to pay another university for a fifth year to then decide if they want to be a teacher or not. And I just think the the hoops that we're making these people jump through for this job are just incredible. And I don't necessarily know if they add up with that much value added in terms of what kind of teachers we're turning out. Agreed. Don't you think the colleges have fought to increase requirements so that they get more tuition dollars. I mean, that's funding the, the buildings there at Western, at Central, at Eastern, at all these places, they're turning out lots of teachers or we're turning out lots of teachers. More barriers mean more classes, means more tuition dollars. Those universities are scrapping for kids. That's why they put those in, don't you think? Totally, I mean, that's the racket at the end of this whole thing was you and I had to get master's degrees at some point early in our career. I remember like taking master's classes from uh, Michigan State at one point. I also took some from um, University of Michigan Flint. And, you know, when I got there, it was sort of this nod and wink show of, look, everybody, you've all paid your money. And as long as you attend and as long as you put any sort of effort forth, we're all going to get an A and we're all going to get out of here. Because the last thing we want you to do is go home and tell your friends that this was a hard master's program because that we can't bill for the next group of people are going to be coming in. And ironically, as state budgets got tighter about 10 years ago, they eliminated the master's degree requirement. They realized they were paying teachers too much who automatically had to get a master's degree. And so they said, well, now you can just get professional hours to meet your sort of recertification requirements and stuff like that. But I just think maybe the problem is, as you said, it's an advertisement problem. It's how we talk about what the job is. And it's also how we prepare people to do the job. And I just think all of that should be really re-examined along with things like the pay scale and, and, and even certifications. Because again, I think there could be really talented people out there that could be great teachers. I know some people that would be great. They're great with young people. They just didn't get the certification, which as you know, is a really arduous process to get as well. 
Now, hold on. When I was a young teacher, I would have said, why are these older teachers making more money? Just doesn't mean they're doing a better job than I am. I'm doing just as good as them. I should be paid so much too. But I don't want it to change now. I'm deeply invested in this system. I need the money. I got to pay for this high-class lifestyle we're leading and ski vacations and so forth. And we, I don't want the system to change. I, I, I've already gained it. I know how to do it. I don't want it to change and have young people make the money. I want to be where I am now. You mentioned the word high-class lifestyle. Is it a billionaire lifestyle? Not yet. Still working on that. Okay. No, I, I get it. And you could say, isn't that part of the thing is you and I are now on the other side of this. When we were younger, we were always envious of the older teachers that made more and seemed to have a little more security in their jobs. And you're right. Now you could say, what's the incentives for us to want to make a lot of adaptions about the, the process and the gigs as we now stand to benefit from all of it? Absolutely. Hey, the rules were set out crystal clear when we started in this game. We knew that we had to get our master's degree in the second year teaching. I went to the Harvard of the West, Cal State San Bernardino, got my master's degree done so that I could make more money, did my extra credit so I could make more money. That's what we're doing. And we've now gamed the system. We're making good money for working 182 days a year, and there's nothing wrong with that. But other people don't really want in, or they want in, but they don't necessarily want it. I don't know if they want in even. No, that's a good point. I guess it will be interesting to see sort of what the graduation numbers of future teachers are out of those colleges over the next couple of years to see if there's any sort of an increase. Sometimes, as you know, market corrections can take a few years. And as there's a shortage, I do think you will see some districts having to raise their pay schedules a little bit to try to be competitive. What I wonder is what you're going to see is districts poaching each other's teachers. I've noticed, in, or at least in my wife's district, I've noticed that like they're starting to pay teachers the number of years they've already taught based upon experience. In the old days, if you wanted to switch districts, you had to start at the very bottom of their pay schedule. But I'm noticing now districts offering years and whatever they have to do to fill their teaching ranks, which might just mean that another district now is hurting to fill their own ranks. And which districts will hurt the most? It's likely the ones in impoverished areas that'll end up with the teachers that are poached away and the most young and inexperienced and perhaps not as good teachers. Yeah, no, you might be right on that. I think this is a fascinating topic. It's something that I want to just keep watching and looking for. And hopefully maybe down the road, we can we can comment on it again. But I think it's something that's going to be here for a while. And uh, obviously, if, uh, if if Mr. McLaughlin leaves in three years, we're going to, going to need to find another great one out there. Well, hopefully you'll be you'll be making a huge announcement and you're going to say, I'm leaving to go live the billionaire lifestyle in three years. I got to start working on that book or invention or something. An internet. How about a social media website that everybody goes to? Ugh. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking to you this week. I look forward to talking with you next week. Absolutely, Zach. Good to chat with you. Have a good one. Take care.